my wife. Um, <laughs> and you go to Kids City, you have a good time. If you are new with us and you have kids, feel free to leave your kids in here if you want. Um, either way is fine with us. There's also a nursery back there with a feed into the service if you want to go in there as well. So, um, all right. So this is, this is summer. Um, see you guys sitting by the window over there again, the breeze. <laughs> summer, it's, it's hot in here. Everyone's traveling. Um, everyone's at the cottage. It's been a beautiful summer. Um, like I said, last week we just got back from three weeks away, almost four weeks away, we were in Europe. Talked to someone this morning who uh, was in Nepal for a month in the Philippines. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw Minsu and uh, Mali, they're in Indonesia, in Jakarta at a conference. Um, they didn't know each other was going there, by the way, and they just saw each other at this conference in Jakarta. Um, so that's pretty sweet. Um, weddings, everything, uh, but uh, I had so much fun worshiping Jesus this morning uh, with you guys, and so um, it's awesome that even though everyone's out and traveling in a way, um, we're still together uh, as the body, whether we're here physically or whether we're in Jakarta at an awesome conference or in Nepal doing missions or um, just relaxing uh, on the Mediterranean. Mediterranean in Europe, <laughs> um, uh, wherever you are. And so a lot of you guys may be listening to this online. Uh, so let me give you a couple things. We're in this series called Jesus Calling, and uh, I'm going to summarize where we are up to this point. And if you've been here throughout the whole summer, it's going to sound redundant, um, or maybe it won't. Uh, <laughs> But uh, we're doing this because if you look around, like half or three quarters of us are gone. So a lot of people are catching these things online. So um, this is why we repeat every, this is why I'm going to summarize the, where we are up to this point every, every sermon so that it, it gives us some coherency and some cohesiveness to what we're trying to do. Because actually what we're trying to do is something really big. Um, we're going through the Bible in, what is it, 15 weeks, whatever it ends up being. Um, we're going through the entire Bible. So we've already gone through the entire Old Testament, and now we are going to go into the New Testament today. And in order to do that, we've been tracing two themes. One has been uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the, the one who has promised to come and rescue us. Uh, and the other theme is just what we call our, our discipleship paradigm here at Trinity Life Church. It's hear, trust, obey. So there's no metrics for discipleship. There's no program. There's no class. It's just hearing God's voice, trusting it enough to obey it. And so those two things you'll see in every sermon um, in order to tie everything together. And today we're talking about uh, the coming of Christ. So we've been waiting for this guy to come, and now we're going to talk about what it looks like in him coming. So... Before we jump into that, you guys been watching the Olympics? Anybody? This? What? I love the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. It's the first thing Peter said to me this morning. You're watching the Olympics? I said, every minute. I watch it in Canada, and I watch it in the U.S. <laughs> I would stream Thailand, too, if I could get a stream from Thailand, because um, we root for the Thai teams. But it's really cool for us. This is the first Summer Olympics we've been in Canada, and so it's cool, like, rooting for multiple countries. Um, I don't know if some of you guys who are Chinese root for China or Korea or whatever. 
Um, do you guys do that? I see no, I see this, okay. Um, so I root for Thailand, even though they're in like three events, um, and there's no chance of them winning any of them, unless it's like judo or <laughs> something like that. Um, we saw a Thai rower yesterday in, like, in women's rowing. The Canadian woman, like, she just destroyed everybody. It was actually, I mean, it was pretty epic. I mean, she destroyed everybody. Uh, did you guys see Rugby Sevens, the new event? So we were watching it with my girls, and they're, like, glued to the TV because it's rough. Have you guys seen rugby? It's so rough. And they're like, I was like, you guys like this? Emerson was like, yeah. <laughs> I said, Cassandra does this. And they're like, what? Really? So, what's that? Yeah, you teach them to play, but I'm not going to play. Uh, <laughs> actually, yesterday I was like, I should play this. Um, but I, yeah, oh. <laughs> Why are you guys shaking your head like this? <laughs> yes, I'll, I might die. Um, so, anyways, Olympics are on. Like, I, I've... I've loved um, summer. I love the team sports. Miss um, and I were talking about that yesterday. Uh, but it made me think of something. Because I, although I love the team dynamic, um, it made me start thinking about our culture. Okay? So here's the thing. Our culture is, is a culture of groupthink. Okay? So if you guys don't know this term, here's a definition for it. Um, it I learned it in marketing when we were in business. We learned this term. Uh, but here's the definition. Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon that occurs within a group of people in which the desire for harmony or conformity in the group results in an irrational or dysfunctional decision-making outcome. Okay, Do you, are you guys following it so far? So the group wants harmony and conformity so much that oftentimes you have an irrational or dysfunctional decision. Okay? Group members try to minimize conflict and reach a consensus decision without critical evaluation of alternative viewpoints by actively suppressing dissenting viewpoints, anyone that goes against what the group says, and by isolating themselves from outside influences. So this is, this is a groupthink mentality. This is... Uh, what our culture really is. We're, we're in a groupthink culture, okay? The problem with this is, if you look at this, one of the biggest byproducts of a groupthink culture, and when groupthink happens, is shame. Or, at the very least, the fear of shame, or the fear of being shamed. Because you don't want to go against the group, right? Because the group says one thing, and, and you're saying, well, no, I don't... I don't want to give my viewpoint because, like it says, they're just going to actively suppress it. And then, who knows, I might be shamed and be out of the group. Um, when, I was in, when I was in grade six, so I went to 10, 11 different schools growing up. We moved around a lot growing up. My family did. My dad, uh, yeah, just my dad's job. So... Um, Moved around a lot, and uh, so when I would go into a school, it was always hard. I don't know if, if any of you guys have ever moved schools. If you, have you guys seen the movie Inside Out? Yeah? That was my childhood, uh, like going to a new place and feeling like this, this is horrible and everything. Um, so I remember watching that movie, and I called up my sister, and I was like, that's our life. 
I'm all crying and stuff. Um, so uh, it, it was hard. It's hard moving schools, right? You raise your hand. It's hard moving schools. Uh, so I went to a new school in grade six. Um, new friends, new everything. And I have a twin sister. Have you guys ever seen Beverly Hills 90210? Yeah, yeah. I see some heads shaking. No, like this was the show when I was when I was growing up. So this is Brandon and Brenda Walsh. They're twins. They moved from Minnesota to Beverly Hills, and then they're like in the popular crowd. That didn't happen to me. Okay, so I didn't look like Jason Priestley growing up. Um, like we didn't go into the popular crowd. It was always hard to make friends and all that. So we get into this new school. I'm in math class. And I loved my math class. It was my favorite teacher. She just made it fun. And I sat by four of the most popular kids in school. Okay? Um, and I was a run growing up. I was short. I was 5'2 until I was in my uh, fourth year of high school. Okay? So I shot up in, like, even into university. Um, so I was a run. I was little. I didn't. I didn't play sports, you know. All I had was uh, being the class clown. All I had was trying to be as funny as I could to make friends. So I start making friends with, with these four people that sit right around me. And the girl I have, the cr I have a crush on, she's the most popular girl in, my, in grade six. Uh, she sits right behind me. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is great placement. Um, everything. So the whole year, halfway through the year, everything's going great. And we're taking a math test. And uh, in the middle of math, math test, you know, it's when you get done with your test, you get up and you take it to the teacher's desk and you come back down and you sit in your desk and you just sit there in silence, right, until everybody's done. So did that, went, took my test. I was pretty proud of myself because I finished, I finished fairly early. And I was like, yeah, I did a good job. Um, and there's always like this sense of pride. There's always a sense of pride when you're one of the first ones to actually finish the test and put it up there, because everyone's like, oh man, he's already finished. Um, so I, I felt, the sinful me felt that. <laughs> so go put my, my test on the teacher's desk, come back, um, sit down in my seat, and you just have to sit in silence. So I was going to get something out of my book bag to, to read or something. So I bend over, remember it's silent in the class, I bend over... I'm sitting in my seat. I bent over to get something in my book bag, and I ripped like the biggest fart ever. I mean, and it reverberates on that yellow plastic seat. It's, it's like, brrr, boom. And guess who's sitting behind me? The most popular girl in school, right? Um, and it is just, it's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. And that's saying a lot because a lot of other embarrassing things have happened to me. But that's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened. And it was, it was like just tore through the silence and maybe my pants. Like it was so loud. And at the same time, this girl is walking next to me, walking down, down my aisle to take in her test. I look at her, like try to, blaming, try to blame it on her. I look at her and like, yeah, <laughs> like it was her. But no one believes that. Um, it was horrible. It was just, just horrible. Have you guys ever experienced shame, embarrassment, public disgrace <laughs> like that? For some of you guys, you just, you just got that, like, that twinge. Like you just felt a, a piece of that shame again because something like that has happened to you where 
just publicly you were you're embarrassed. Um, and this shame culture, uh, this groupthink culture creates this shame culture. And, and what we actually live in today is this culture of shame. And in the West, we think, oh, that's just in the East. Uh, but right now, this is our, the culture we live in. So I saw this, I read this article. Um, it's by a guy named David Brooks. He did an op-ed piece in the New York Times. And he was commenting on a guy named Andy Crouch and his article on the shame culture. Andy Crouch is a cultural commentator. He's an author. He's a Christian. Um, he writes. He's widely published. He has bestsellers, all these things. But he's, he's a cultural commentator on the, on the culture we live in. And he says these things about shame culture. He says, in a guilt culture, you know you're good or bad by what your conscience feels. But in a shame culture, you know you're good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors or excludes you. Okay? So we're starting to see what the difference is. For a long time, the West has been looked at as a guilt culture. Okay? But he's saying there's been a shift into shame culture. And this is one of the shifts. Second one is, in a guilt culture, people sometimes feel they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel they are bad. Okay? Starting to see this develop here. Let's go to the next one. The ultimate shame today is to criticize a group, especially on moral grounds. Talk of good and bad has to defer to talk about respect and recognition. Okay? Let me give you an example here. So... um, Let's, let's take the church. The church said, if the church is, is a group and they criticize another group, so let's say, let's say uh, they, they um, I'm trying to think of an example on the fly here. Let's say they, they criticize uh, the Muslims. Okay? Let's say the church criticizes another religion, Muslims, and they do it on moral grounds. They say, you know, that's, that's right, and that's wrong, that's good, and that's evil. And I'm not saying that the church is right or wrong in saying that. I'm just saying this is a hypothetical situation where the church is saying that Islam is wrong and it's, it's evil. So talk of good or bad now defers to talk about respect and recognition. So now our culture would say, you can't say that because you need to respect them. You need, to, you need to recognize them as, as equals, okay? And this is where our culture has shifted to. Now, go back to this example. Um, it's not to say whether what the Christian, has, what the Christian group has said is right or wrong. Because I think we would all agree that if we as a church said, said that about another group, um, and if I just said that here, we would all say, Ugh, we, don't, we don't want that. Um, we would say, well, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. He would, he would try to approach them in love and grace. Okay? Um, that was, so that was just an example to say, this is what, what's happening in our culture today. So you can take that to social issues. You can take that to sin issues. So let's just, take a, let's just say the church says there's a strip club over here, and we say, that's... that's um, that's not right. We don't want that in our neighborhood. Um, then the church ends up getting criticized because they're not respecting or, or recognizing this group and what they desire. Okay? 
Take us now to another example. Um, there's a, an organization in our city that is putting a, um, uh, their offices and, and maybe even a shelter, but mainly their offices in Chinatown on Spadina. So YSM is putting offices there, Young Street Mission, and they're getting, they're getting criticized because of things that, that people think they're bringing into the community. Okay? And YSM is just an organization trying to do a good thing. Right? But, but the rest of the community says, well, you say that's good, but we're not saying that's good. We say we don't want homeless people in our community. We don't want street people in our community, and you're going to attract that. And YSM is saying, but what we're doing is good. And they're saying, actually, it's not. Because you're going to attract these people, you're going to take down our businesses, you're going to take down all these things. So we have like two groups here competing. And who's to say which one is right or wrong? Well, nobody. It ends up not being about right or wrong, it ends up being about respect and recognition. Okay? So go to the next one. So the new moral system isn't based on right and wrong, it's actually based on inclusion and exclusion. And this is what ends up creating a culture of shame. Okay, is that the last one? Okay, one more. This is the last one? Okay, two more. <laughs> so here's the thing. This is what, what David Brooks cites and what Andy Crouch says. Guilt culture could be harsh, but at least you could hate the sin and still love the sinner. The modern shame culture allegedly values inclusion and tolerance, but it can, strain, it can be strangely unmerciful to those who disagree or those who don't fit in. So now... When you have a group say, we believe this is the right course of action, and you have a dissenting opinion, and they say, no, how about this, they immediately get ostracized. And this is what's happened to the church in our city. Okay? Uh, and I'm not saying if, whether it's right or wrong. Actually, I think the church has, like we, have deserved a lot of the ridicule we get in our city because we haven't approached issues correctly. We have been saying hey, you're, you're wrong, we're right, you're evil, we're good. And that's not the right way to, to speak about truth. Okay? Um, that's truth divorced from love. When, when Paul says when we do that, we're just a clanging symbol. Okay? We're, we're, just, we're just making noise. So, uh, but our church has, this is what, what's happened. We've been ostracized and isolated from, from our city. And, um, and it's because of this culture we live in where if we disagree, we automatically get pushed to the fringes. And then the last one. Fame, ha fame has replaced honor as its more fickle, ephemeral cousin. So used to, we used to have a shame culture, and the opposite was honor. Now today, we have a shame culture, but the opposite isn't honor, the opposite is fame. And this is because of social media. This is because, and, and Crouch makes this point, he says, because of our social media, immediate gratification, quick uh, mentality where we need things now, we need things brief, um, it's led to everyone's, not 15 minutes of fame, 15 seconds of fame. And so instead of, uh, for, so for our remedy for shame, we're actually looking not for honor, we're looking for fame. We're looking to be included by the masses, and that's what fame is. Okay? Because in a traditional honor-shame culture, people don't want shame, but actually don't want public honor. 
Because public honor is like, oh, well, I don't want... They want honor, but to be like, exalted publicly, they don't want that. Okay? You, you go to any Asian country, you can, you can see that, um, where, where this, this culture is still, still in there. So um, this, is, this is sin. This is exactly what's created the shame culture. The first effect of sin we talked about weeks ago in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, when they, they took God's moral system and replaced it with their own moral system, right? God said, this is what's good, this is what's bad. There's plenty of good here for you to choose from. There's, there's one thing that's bad. They said, no, actually, God, we want this evil thing over here. And they flipped God's moral system and, and made it their own thing. So now they're working in a flawed system, right? The first effect of that sin, of that choice, wasn't guilt. It wasn't for them to, to do anything else except be ashamed. So if you read the Bible, it says, Adam and Eve felt ashamed. They felt shame. Okay? So here's, here's uh, a statement uh, that I want you to remember. This is the bottom line of the sermon that I want you to remember throughout as we talk about the scriptures. So instead of trading in your shame for fame, you need to lose your life in order to gain. Okay? This is what Jesus shows us. This is what the promised one in the Old Testament is all about. This is what the Messiah is coming for. This is what the rescuer is, is about. He's saying... And the Bible doesn't, the Bible, it's, it's amazing, the Bible doesn't like totally demolish the shame culture. The Bible actually operates in it. God operates in the shame on a culture that's been created by sin. And, and G, when Jesus comes, he redefines it and he redeems it. Okay, because we, here's the reality, we live in the effects of sin. Number one effect of sin is shame. So sometimes we say, oh, well, they're living in a shame honor society. But no, we all are. And Andy Crouch does a good job pointing this out because it's been brought to the fore in the social media environment. So instead of trading in your shame for fame, you need to lose your life in order to gain. And we're going to talk about how Jesus shows us how to do this. Okay? So as we've gone through this series, we've preached through the series a lot differently because it's... It's a, what's called a biblical theology. So it's themes. It's an overarching narrative that we're tracing. So before this, we were in Philippians, and we kind of went into three verses at a time or ten verses at a time, and we, and we preached in, in verses. Today, I'm not going to preach like that. Through this whole series, I'm not going to preach like that. I'm actually going to preach more like Peter does in Acts 2, where he says his very first sermon, he just gives the whole Old Testament. He says, hey, guys, this is the story we live in. Um, so the sermon today is going to be a lot, a lot more like that than in, in one passage. So the passage Emily read, we're going to start with, but then we're going to go to other passages. There's four passages in the scriptures that talk about who Jesus is, why he came uh, for us, and why it's significant for us. They're called the four Christological passages in the New Testament. So it's John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. That's easy for you guys to remember. They're all ones except number 2. It's Philippians 2. Right? Okay. That's how I remember it anyways. Um, so we're going to start with John 1, 
And I'm going to show you how Jesus uh, takes the guilt culture and he operates in it to redefine it. How he takes the shame culture, he operates in it to redefine it, and he creates a new culture for us to live in. Okay? And that's the church. And that's what we're supposed to be trying to do, create this new culture for people to live in. So, um, John 1 uh, is an amazing passage that, that Emily read. And uh, John starts off with saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what he's doing is he's, he's just taken the whole basically Old Testament and all of history, and he's put it into one thing, and he calls it the Word, okay? And this, this word in Greek is called, uh, is the, the Greek word is logos. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word he's saying, in the beginning was the logos. The reason that's significant is because, so all of history we've gone through is leading up to this moment in time. You know, when Adam, God creates Adam and Eve uh, sin, uh, God promises a rescuer to come, and now we've taken you through the whole Old Testament where we're waiting for that rescuer. We see this person, we're like, is that the guy? No. Is that the person? No. Is that the person? No, no, no. And we get all the way to 400 years. Last week we talked about prophecy and, and the prophetic Christ. In between that and now, there's 400 years where God is silent. Where God doesn't speak. Okay? There's no scripture written. There's no prophecy spoken. The last prophecy was Malachi saying, someone's going someone's gonna to come and rescue us. And then there's 400 years of nothing. And God just leaves them. And so when John speaks and he talks about Jesus, this is the first time that the silence is broken. What's, what's amazing... Uh, about this is um, three, four hundred years before Jesus, Greek philosophy happens and the Greek world starts to starts to form. And the logos, this the word, becomes a philosophical construct. And uh, Socrates uh, starts talking about the logos, and then. Um, Plato starts talking about the Logos. And then Aristotle starts talking about the Logos. And Alexander the Great uh, and Aristotle kind of go in the same timeline. He's, Aristotle is Alexander the Great's tutor. And Alexander the Great conquers the known world in like 12 years or something like that. Um, dies at 32, I believe. And then his kingdom is divided. So the whole known world becomes uh, Greek and the kingdom is divided, and all this is prophesied in the scriptures. So even though God has been silent in these 400 years that this is happening, he prophesied all this in the book of Daniel. Um, and, and so the kingdom gets divided, but it still stays Greek. So the logos, this idea of the logos that Aristotle and Plato and Socrates have developed of something out there that binds the universe together has been all throughout the, the world. And so when John writes, he's saying, in the beginning was, guess what, was the Lagos. So this thing that everyone says they believe in, that we don't know how to, how to think about, we don't know, we, we haven't put a name to it, this is it. And so he says, he was with God in the beginning, he was God. And then the Lagos in verse 14 became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And so he's saying Jesus had to do this to redeem us. And what's amazing here in verse 16, he says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through the Old Testament, we've seen that we're just in need of a Savior. We are sinners. We are depraved. The whole Old Testament uh, is pointed to the fact that we need a rescuer. We talked about that last week. And what Jesus comes when he... when what Jesus brings when, when he comes into this world isn't condemnation, isn't judgment, isn't shame. What he brings is grace. Is something we don't, what he brings is something we don't deserve. And Jesus could have brought any one of those other things, but instead, he brings grace. Okay? Hold on to that. We'll go to the next passage. So, Next passage is Philippians 2. I won't go into it too much because we preached it just, I think Easter is when we preached it, Philippians 2. But I'm going to point out a couple things about what this says about Jesus. Because what, what is happening in Philippians 2 is this, this uh, shame culture that we live in is now being redefined, is now being reversed in some sense. So it starts out like this. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of, uh, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now, this doesn't sound too different from what our culture talks about today. You know, we need to be. There needs to be one love. There needs to be. Um, a lot of university campuses in the states are doing a one. Uh, so Wheaton, actually, uh, by, where, by where you're from. Uh, Wheaton College has this thing called One Wheaton, where they're saying, we're one, we're going to accept everybody, we're going to tolerate everybody, and it's called One Wheaton. So a lot of universities in the States are doing this. Um, some schools here in Canada are doing it as well, where they have this promotion thing where they're saying, we're, we're one, we're united. So it doesn't sound too different from this. The difference... The big difference is, the points I emphasize were, Paul says we do this in Christ or in the Spirit. So here we have something centering us. We have someone centering us. We have the truth centering us. We have the one who came to rescue us centering us. Um, a lot of times in our culture, there's nothing really centering us. We're just saying, yeah, 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 we all need to sh have one love. We all need to accept everybody. But here's, here's the reality, like, you don't accept everybody. There's, there's no way, there's, there's just no way you can do that. And what we've done is made the, what Crouch pointed out, is the culture has become more intolerant, not more tolerant. Because what's happened is it's pushed out those who have dissenting viewpoints. And so for the sake of tolerance, we become intolerant. Okay? Because we, we have this superficial oneness, but it's not centered on anything. And, well, yeah, I'm not going to get on that right now. So, um, Paul says here, if we're going to be one, we need to be centered in Christ, centered in the Spirit, and as a result, 
He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. And then he starts to give us this, this example of Jesus. And Jesus, he says, humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus takes on the form of a servant. Jesus um, takes, he doesn't count equality with God as something to be grasped at. He actually releases it for us. And as a result, the last verse says, God will bestow on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and then every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus begins to take away shame, because Jesus experienced the most shameful death. Jesus experienced all the shame of our own sin. Jesus experienced all the shame of the cross, and then, and then the, the scriptures say that God gives him the name that is above every other name. And so it's only in Jesus, it's only in the Spirit, that our own shame can be taken away. And Jesus starts to show us this. He starts to show us that it's not culture and being included that's going to take away your shame. There's something else that Jesus creates, a new community that Jesus creates. And Annie Crouch says this um, about the new community of faith. He says, the remedy for shame is not becoming famous. It's not even being affirmed. That's what we're seeking, right? We're all seeking affirmation. He says it's not even about that. It's being incorporated into a community with new, different, and better standards for honor. It's a community where weakness is not excluded, but weakness is valued. Where honor-seeking and boasting of all kinds are repudiated. Where servants are raised up to sit at the table with those they once served. Where even the ultimate dishonor of the cross, this is Jesus, is transformed into glory. The ultimate participation in honor. And I love this part. He says, to use the powerful biblical metaphor, the gospel offers adoption. A family that wasn't ours, God brings us into. A new status as sons, to use the intentionally gendered high status word of Romans 8, to both men and women, now members of the family of the firstborn son. Let me say something about that real quick. The Bible never mentions, uh, that I know of, I should say, just put a a caveat on there, um, daughters of God. Okay? Some of you guys are like, ah, talks about sons of God a lot. Now, this shouldn't rub you guys the wrong way. This is because when the Bible is written, it's written in a culture. I don't even want to say a culture. Like, think about today. I was actually, uh, I was washing my car a few weeks ago at a place here in Toronto. Um, so I actually wasn't washing it. The guy was washing it. And I was standing there talking to him and actually helping him. He's like, hey, hand me the vacuum. I'm like, okay. <laughs> He's like, hey, give me the, your, your mats. Yeah, put your mats back in the car. I'm like, do I have to tip you? <laughs> uh, no, but it was fun because we were talking, we were, we were having a good time. Um, and I have the car seats in the car. And he's like, oh, I see you have kids. How many, uh, how many kids do you have? I was like, oh, I have two daughters. He was like, oh, that's okay. You know, daughters are good too. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is like the 21st century. This is Toronto. Why is he saying that? And it hit me then. Uh, we still, even in Toronto, even in the 21st century, we still have a view, many cultures do, 
that sons are better than daughters because sons carry on the name, son, whatever it is, whatever it is. Um, so we don't even have to say the Bible was written in a culture back then. Just think about our culture, okay? Um, uh, there's countries today that you, you know about them. So uh, Paul uses the word sons because he's saying, guess what? When you're adopted into the family, whether you're male or female, you have the status of a son. You have the status of the firstborn son, the, the chosen one, the prized one. You know, and it's significant because he, he could have said, when daughters are adopted in the kingdom, they have status as daughters. But he knows that our culture is going to read that wrongly. We're going to be like, oh, you know, probably two-thirds of our culture still reads that in a uh, diminished way. Oh, well, a daughter is just a daughter. He says, no, actually, a daughter becomes just as good as a son. Just as good as what you think a son would be, a daughter becomes that. And then in this, in this uh, Romans 8, then he switches to children. So he, he goes, he says, guess what? Anybody who's adopted in the kingdom, no matter what gender you are, you become a son. And now you're all children of God. So then he switches to this more gender-neutral term. Okay? Like, that's actually really cool, guys, that he sees the culture, that God sees the culture that we've created, that we're in. God didn't create this misogynistic culture. We did. God didn't create this culture where sons are elevated above daughters. We created that. God just operates in this, and then he supersedes it all the time. Okay? The Bible is the only book in history that's uh, religious book in history that's elevated women to a stature of equality. Okay, and that's what Paul is doing here. So I love that Romans 8 still uses that, and I love that Andy Crouch mentions this. So um, this is the new community that is is being created in Philippians 2. It's a community where it can be transparent, where we don't have to be afraid of our weaknesses, or we don't have to be afraid of people pushing us out because we have dissenting views, because uh, he's, because the Bible says, God's like, hey, come reason with me. Let's talk about this. And this is the community that Christ creates. Okay, I'm going to roll through the last two. Colossians 1 is this guilt, is, is where guilt is, this guilt culture, I should say, is, is switched, it's changed. So let me show you this graphic real quick. Um, this graphic talks about a guilt culture versus a shame culture. And in a guilt culture, I know you're not going to read it, but this is done by a missionary who spent a lot of time in shame culture. There we go. Um, thanks, Teresa. So you see a guilt culture emphasizes certain attributes, holiness, power of God, and shame culture emphasizes some different ones. We live in both of these, okay? It's not like we live in one and there's, there aren't two different cultures. This is some cultures emphasize one over the other, but we live in both of these. But a guilt culture emphasizes that God is a lawgiver, that he's sinless, that he's just, that he's morally pure, that he forgives us, that uh, Jesus, when he dies, he satisfies some sort of divine justice, making our forgiveness possible. You see, a, same, a shame culture highlights sonship. That's why we just talked about it. Honors the lowly, humbles the proud. This is why Philippians 2 talks about Jesus humbling himself and then God exalting him. Okay? Um, it uh, emphasizes God's faithfulness, things like that. Um, Colossians 1 talks about guilt culture and just says that Jesus, because of who he is, he is the firstborn son. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. 
He can take away all our sin, give us forgiveness, justify us, give us salvation, redeem us, and take away our guilt, okay, so that we no longer have to be guilty. And he couches this all in God's display of love on the cross of Jesus Christ. Our culture is all about self-love today. Um, we talk about self-love all the time. You just need to, this is what our culture says. You need to, if you can learn to love yourself, so you yourself, love yourself, when you learn to do that, you'll be able to give love to yourself and then to other people. Does that sound confusing? Um, you need to love yourself more in order to love others more. Um, that sounds a little, a little jumbled. Now, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't totally repudiate self-love. The Bible actually operates in the context of self-love. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Bible, Jesus, he assumes self-love. He assumes that we're good at it because we are. You don't need to love yourself more. You're already good at it. You know how to do it. The Bible assumes you know how to do it. Because he says, because you know how to do it, love others like you would love yourself. But here's the difference. He says, love God before that. The first thing he says is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And then you can love your neighbor as yourself. Our culture says, this is a slight shift, when you learn to love yourself, then you can love others. The Bible says, when you learn to love God, then you can love others. And so in the Bible, self-love inherently is, is God-love because it's recognizing who we were created to be, who we, who we always were, this return to the garden. And if we're to be a community, if we're to be a church, if you're to be, if you're to be an individual uh, that is embodying this new community and promoting, you need to embrace certain values. You need to embrace the grace of John 1. You need to embrace the humility of Philippians 2. You need to embrace, uh, I didn't get to Hebrews 1 yet, um, but the restoration of Hebrews 1 and the justice of Colossians 1. And in Hebrews 1, God shows Jesus as being the restorer of all things. He says, yeah, things are messed up. Yeah, you live in this shame culture, in this culture that says you should be, feel guilty. But guess what? Jesus, in Christ, he restores all of that for you. And so we don't have to die like Jesus died. So when I say we need to lose our life in order to gain something, we don't have to die like Jesus died. We just have to die to our, our sin. We have to die to our guilt. We get to die to our shame. We get to die to all those things that are holding us back from our true identity and destiny in Christ. And the beauty of the new community is that all of us, if you're in Christ, you've accepted that. You've accepted that he takes away your guilt and your shame, that he forgives, that he redeems, that he restores, and it had nothing to do with what you've done. It has everything to do with what he's done. 
And that's the difference between what the world says and what kingdom culture says. Our world says, you need to do this and this and this. Christ says, all you need to do is believe and accept. I've taken care of everything already. And so whether you're a believer in here today or whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not, Jesus offers you this beautiful gospel where it has nothing to do with you and all to do with him. It has nothing to do with, with what you do or don't do except to believe and trust, to hear his voice, to trust it, and to obey it. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion. We celebrate when we take the bread that his body...